This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. The best part about right now with regards to how we are all assessing female candidates and how the press is covering female candidates is that there are so many. So we don't have to justify if the politics of a female president is massively important to you, as it is to me. We don't have to justify bad behavior because we have lots of other choices. And we can look honestly at coverage and see, wait, what's bubbling up because it's a problem with gender and because it's a problem with this candidate. And look, it's not bubbling up for some of the other candidates. It's not we're not hearing, oh, they're a tough boss about Kristen Gillibrand or Kamala Harris. And so we need to think about that, too. I mean, that's the best part about this is we can look across the board and say, wait, what's an issue? What's uh, what are we seeing as systematic of the way all of them are covered? as opposed to the way in which this particular candidate is covered. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about another government shutdown. 
the events in the state of Virginia. And in our main segment, we're going to talk about how we cover women in politics, specifically the plethora of female candidates running for the Democratic nominee for president. And then to close out, we'll share what's on our mind outside politics. Before we get started, we did want to share that we have two amazing conversations we wanted to share with you on other podcasts. One of our listeners described them as a flight of listening, which I thought was beautiful. First, we were on Annie B. Jones' podcast from the front porch. We absolutely adore Annie, and the conversation was, not surprisingly, delightful as Annie herself is. And then we were also on the Currently Reading podcast and had another fantastic conversation about our book, what we're reading, what we're sharing in our book, and just a generally book lover-centric conversation. So check out both From the Front Porch and Currently Reading. We also wanted to share an upcoming event with all of you because you're knocking down our door asking, when are you going to come around where I live? So first up on February 28th at 6 p.m., we will be at the Historic Art Craft Theater in Franklin, Indiana with the Wild Geese Bookshop. We're really excited about this author event. So if you're near Franklin, Indiana, we'll be there on Thursday, February 28th. We're also hoping to be on the Mike Huckabee Show on February 20th. I know some listeners have already gotten tickets In the audience. So if you're in Nashville, you can check that out. And then in a couple months, we'll be up in New Hampshire for an event in Portsmouth. So if you live up in New Hampshire, pay attention to our Facebook page and we'll be sharing information about that more in the future. A great place to stay on top of what we're doing, where we're going to be is Instagram. And we wanted to direct your attention there this week, too, because it's Valentine's week. And so we're going to be sharing all kinds of fun Galentine valentine postings and we would love for you to join us there so head on over to instagram also sarah is doing this fantastic morning news briefing in instagram stories now and if you are missing that you're missing out oh thank you we also wanted to say again that we're still doing the if you give a rep a book initiative and we'll put the links to those signups it's amazing y'all have already signed up for 30 percent of the senators to send them books people are dropping them off at their representative's home office so if you think that I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, a guide to grace-filled political conversation is something our current Congress needs, check out the show notes and you can sign up to share our book with your representative. And at the end of today's episode, you are going to hear from Kelly, who is our amazing listener who started the If You Give a Rep, a book initiative. And it was just awesome for me to get to talk with her. And you can hear in her own words what is in her heart as she created these spreadsheets and started encouraging people to send the book out into the world. And the last thing on the book today is that reviewing our book on Amazon would be a very kind act. If you've read it, we really (laughs) appreciate that. Apparently, Amazon reviews are very critical in sort of the next steps for the book, getting it into more bookstores and out into the world even more. So if you have a minute and could drop a review, we would really appreciate that too. So today we're going to kick off the show by talking about the current budget negotiations surrounding the border wall. There is a bipartisan committee negotiating that, and it was looking, it's looking really good for a while. There was lots of positive reporting. Everybody seemed confident that no one was going to support another shutdown. However, the reporting as of this weekend is that the negotiations have broken down They were on board with the amount of money. It seemed like we were getting really close to an agreement on the amount of money for border wall, border fencing. Physical barriers. Physical Mm -hmm. barriers. However, you want to you want to get on thesaurus.com and figure out a way to say that. That's great. It was about two to three billion. But that was we were moving forward with that number, which was short of what the president was demanding. But that seemed okay. Now, however, 
we seem to have come to an impasse about beds, specifically the number of beds available for ICE detention. With the Democrats wanting a limit of 16,500, which was about the number at the end of the Obama presidency, and the Republicans wanting an exception to that number for anyone with a criminal record or important, as far as I'm concerned, anyone even charged with a crime as well as like something as small as a misdemeanor. The Democrats said, if we do that, there's no point in having a limit to begin with. And that seems to be where we're at. I think this gets confusing because when you think about beds, like that sounds like a whole different conversation than the entire immigration debate. You could think of the number of beds here as sort of a metaphor for what does ICE prioritize? That's Mm -hmm. really what we're talking about. Democrats saying, please stop prioritizing people who have overstayed their visas for deportation and detention and instead prioritize people who have committed violent crime. And Republicans are saying, if we have a cap on how many beds are available, then we're hamstringing ICE and its ability to do all kinds of immigration enforcement. I was interested when these talks started and how many members of this conference committee said, if people will leave us alone, we will get this done. And by people, I think they specifically meant the White House. And it does seem to me that the State of the Union address and the hard line the president took on immigration in the State of the Union and his tweets where he is constantly saying, there's no point to any of this, the Democrats don't care, is wearing down the ability of this committee to do its work. I do not for one second believe that we would be stuck on this issue of the number of beds available without all of that external noise to this committee. I am very frustrated with the in particular, the external noise coming from Republicans on cable news and and on Twitter, describing this as Democrats want to allow criminals. I find it so offensive. This conversation about the priorities of ICE is actually impactful to the state of immigration in this country in a way that a wall never will be. And that's what makes me so angry about the disingenuous way they are describing this debate. Because the ability of ICE to, almost without limit, go into communities, rip up communities, rip up families about people that have not committed a crime or have been perhaps charged with a very small misdemeanor is important. It's impactful. It's changing people's lives. And and to describe it in this way of Democrats want to allow murderers, can you even believe this, is so maddening. It's certainly not helping, like you said, the tenor of the negotiations in that room, I can imagine. And it just, to me, shows that there is a conversation to be had about how to actually deal with the immigration in this problem. And then there is a conversation that's had about immigration that has way more to do with campaigns than it does about the state of immigration in our country. And that is incredibly frustrating to me. I think that's laid pretty bare in a lot of the cable news commentary as well, because you have people like Lindsey Graham, who constantly reminds Mm. us that this isn't so much about the substantive policy of what happens here. It is about whether the president will do what he says he has done. It is about whether the Republican Party is going to be seen as a party that is tough on immigration or not. Mick Mulvaney this weekend did the Sunday shows and talked about how there are certain deals that could come out of this committee that the president just couldn't sign on for, given what he has said about immigration before. That's a really dumb place for us to be. Yeah, it's also irrelevant. What are you talking about? Like, oh, well, yes, I think we are all smart people and realize that there are some deals 
I don't know how a deal like that could come out of a bipartisan committee, but whatever. There are some deals the president wouldn't sign. We don't need you saying stuff like that. Of course, there are immigration deals the president could not sign. Yeah, uh uh-huh, we get it. Thank you. It's so unhelpful. It makes me so mad. It's also not the case, in my opinion, that this this particular issue is the only opportunity to do immigration work. It is an Mm -hmm. important opportunity. It is a tone-setting opportunity. But this could get finished in a way that allows the government to remain open, DHS to be funded, and Congress get back to work on other proposals, other reforms. We are having a discussion about how many people ICE can detain in beds. We're essentially talking about expanding incarceration for ICE. We could talk about that in the context of whether our immigration laws make sense, whether the procedures around those laws make sense, whether the enforcement mechanisms for those laws make sense, separate from the budget. And I think that there is just no possibility of long-term legislation getting done in a divided Congress. Shoot, even not a divided Congress. Nothing got done on Mm. this issue under a unified Congress. This national emergency we're facing, but wasn't until the Democrats were elected at the House. Give me a break. So if you want anything to happen in the long run that actually changes the complexion, like we change the problem, right? Instead of keeping it as a problem that we continue to kind of need Mm -hmm. like dough, if you want anything to actually get done, you must keep the government open. Just get the funding done and come back around to it and show that Congress is capable of doing the most basic work of funding executive branch agencies and then move on from there. I think what I'm coming around to is that this isn't moving because Republicans, and I say this as the lifelong Republican voice on this podcast, Republicans are casting this as an existential issue for the party Mm -hmm. instead of as a policy or budgetary question. And that's not healthy. Once something becomes existential, you don't have anywhere to go. It's like we backed ourselves up against the wall. Yep. And I mean, look, I think that this is a huge issue particularly on the progressive left, that there's a segment of the Democratic Party that wants to eliminate ICE. But as a not a member of that wing, I'm not mad at them for trying to limit the amount of detention beds. I think that is an important part of if you're going if we're going to give you funding for a wall and for barriers, for fencing that we all know is pointless, then let's get something impactful out of it. And I agree that this is a really good place to start. We're not trying to eliminate ICE. What we're trying to do is put some real limits on their abilities to go into communities and detain people. I don't think that it's a fair position to say ICE deserves unlimitless ability to detain. Sorry, I don't. And so I just, I'm so frustrated. I, You know, they still have time. It's not till Friday that the government shuts down again. But... I I honestly think some of this is going to come down to whether or not Republicans in Congress decide that this is a winning campaign issue, not where they stand on the policy. Well, and and there is a political element on the Democratic side as well, because I think opposing a wall, the wall, whatever, capital T, capital W, is kind of an existential issue on the Democratic side now. Even Mm -hmm. people who aren't quite ready to shut ICE down are saying, we will go to the mat over this wall. And when it is like that, on both sides of the discussion, you just, you can't go anywhere. 
This should be just good governance. If you are saying that I should have limitless ability to detain people, you don't know much about governing. I mean, no, mm-hmm. no enforcement, no law enforcement have limitless ability to chase down anything, right? To detain, to pursue. Everybody has to operate within resource constraints. I thought that was a big part of why we are Republicans, friends, like that we think there should be resource constraints on different arms of the government. And so... Oh, this is so frustrating to watch because it is so unnecessary. We also wanted to spend some time talking about your friend of mine, Jeff Bezos, and some very interesting developments with regards to him, the Washington Post, and the National Enquirer. And Saudi Arabia. And it's like a partridge in a pear tree. Like this story just keeps getting richer in detail. So for those of you not following along, Jeff Bezos published a piece on Medium in which he basically accused, with some evidence, some emails he published in the article, the National Enquirer of extorting him. They gained access to some text messages and some, some, sex, some sexy photos and were basically saying, if you don't stop trying to figure out how we got these and investigating us, we're going to share these photos publicly. Jeff Bezos is saying this is not just motivated by embarrassing him as a famous head of Amazon, but also because he owns the Post and the Post is sort of relentless in its investigation of Donald Trump and the National Enquirer is a supporter of Donald Trump. So there's all these additional layers of intrigue to this story, which is fascinating. So let me see if I can kind of summarize for people who haven't read as much about this as I unfortunately have at this point. And just to put it out there, journalists, love you. Thanks for your work. I don't need the detailed descriptions of these photographs that many of you are offering up. Well, they were just in the emails. I mean, they were in the emails he published. So I think it's kind of important. It's very true. I don't want to think about Jeff Bezos' penis. Just let me be abundantly clear about that. But There were very detailed descriptions of the photos they have in the emails they were using to try to extort him, basically. Very detailed, very gross. I cannot imagine doing a job every day where I'm sending emails like, let me tell you about this picture that we have. I know. Lord have mercy. Okay. So Jeff Bezos is basically saying the Washington Post has been investigating the president. It has been particularly focused on the president's ties to Saudi Arabia because, reminder, a Washington Post columnist was killed by the Saudi Arabian government. And when the Inquirer started publishing embarrassing information about Jeff's personal life, he hired someone who he says is like best in the business to figure out where that was coming from. And they were building a case that it had been politically motivated. And he says in this Medium post that the Inquirer was particularly bothered by the investigation into Saudi Arabia. And so Jeff is making the case that the Inquirer is an arm of the Trump administration, essentially, and is out there ready to blackmail and extort just about anyone who presents a serious challenge to the Trump administration. And attorneys for David Pecker, who... Girl, what a name for an intrigue about dick pics. What a name. Attorneys for David Pecker have said this was not politically motivated. 
nothing to do with it. In fact, the brother of Jeff's girlfriend actually gave us the pictures and we published them because Jeff is a big, important deal. And what the head of Amazon does in his personal life is of public interest. And here we are. And Jeff says, hey, that sounds familiar. That sounds like every other sleazy thing that you guys do in the tabloids Mm -hmm. where you claim the protections of the First Amendment, and abide by none of the ethical restraints that govern the rest of journalism. The twist here is that David Pecker and his company have entered into an agreement with the Robert Mueller team because they have cooperated with the Southern District of New York's investigation into Michael Cohen. And they received immunity for that cooperation. The immunity agreement says, not surprisingly, don't do any more crime. (laughs) Cut it out. Don't do that. And if if it is the case that their conduct with respect to Jeff constitutes crime, it could be that they lose their immunity in connection with that agreement. And so, again, the layers of this thing, it's a little bit like a Rubik's Cube. I feel really sorry for the woman involved in this. I feel really sorry for Jeff's ex-wife. And I mean, there's there's so much collateral damage around any story like this. I also appreciate him saying, unlike the vast majority of people, I have the resources to stand up against this kind of embarrassment and extortion, and I'm going to do it even though it will cost me. And and so for that, I am grateful. I'm a I'm gonna still be real rich at the end of this. So (laughs) I'm gonna put all my chips on the table. I thought was so interesting about this letter is that it offered some real insight into how he thinks about his legacy, which, you know, he gets a lot of flack for not contributing enough money to charity. But reading the piece, I thought, oh, he the post is his charity. Mm-hmm. Owning and running the post is his charity work. He describes it as something he hopes he looks back on when he's 90 as like his biggest contribution. And you know what? I think that's fair. I still think he should give more money away. But I do think that's a fair way to describe it because I think he is not probably making money off the post. You don't ever hear about the post like doing massive layoffs or whatever. Maybe they are. I don't know. But that he's it's not a money making opportunity for him. He just thinks he sees it as sort of a public service. So Jeff Bezos, you are a fascinating guy. That's all I got to say about that. I think it's important when you think about his level of wealth to remember that this is a person who is pretty young. He's a person who's amassed this fortune very quickly. He has a lot of career left in him. Mm-hmm. I can understand taking on something like The Post as your version of charity at this point in your career. And I think it's important. And look, you can criticize Amazon all day. The way he's handling this, I think is pretty admirable. I do, too. I agree. And I don't like Jeff Bezos, so it's sh- subtly shifting my perception of him. And look, he's not dumb. He knew that was going to happen. He knew whatever there would be embarrassment about the photos, there would also be an uptick in the, wow, look at that guy kind of situation. So, I mean, he's calculated as always, but it was it was a fascinating insight into the the level of his calculation and the way he sees a lot of his empire contribution, et cetera. I think a lot of people of tremendous wealth tend to lower their risk capacity as that wealth increases. And it becomes a lot about how do I hold on to and grow this wealth. It's refreshing for me to see someone say, I have a lot of wealth so I can take some big chances that other people won't take. I think that's important and I, I appreciate it. 
Before we move on, we have to talk about how things have not improved in Virginia. No, not improved. The, the situation is degrading, I would say. And we particularly want to talk about the fact that there is now a second allegation against Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, this time from a woman who says that he raped her in the year 2000 when they were in college. Now, both accusers have come forward publicly. They have said they are willing to testify against him. A delegate who is a Democrat in Virginia has said that he is going to commence impeachment proceedings if Lieutenant Governor Fairfax does not resign. It is possible that that will have happened by the time that this podcast airs. And because we are living in the most bizarre universe possible, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax has hired the same lawyers who worked with Brett Kavanaugh during his hearings to help him navigate this. So if a lot of what he is saying right now sounds familiar to you, it's because it is familiar. Mm. It is. We want an FBI investigation. All the facts need to come out. We vehemently deny this. People are innocent until proven guilty, et cetera. I don't know why you would want that to be your specialty. I guess because it's lucrative. I don't know. But the first accuser I understood had also hired Christine Blasey Ford's attorneys as well. So this is a new uh, area of specialty in law, apparently. I think that what's happening in Virginia is such a hard situation right now, and I'm almost hesitant to wade into it more because goodness knows there are enough opinions and voices on this right now. And I am honestly still processing the entire Kavanaugh situation. I can tell Mm -hmm. every time a story like this surfaces that that is still very fresh for me, and I still get really upset really quickly thinking about it. Again, because I feel like... It's the same conversation we were having about Governor Northam. What builds trust in institutions? It is not having something like this out there. Do you think the calculus for what builds trust in institutions has changed with regards to Governor Northam now that these additional accusations have come out against Lieutenant Governor Fairfax and the attorney general has come forward and said that he wore blackface? I think the political calculus has changed for people. You don't think this the calculus for as far as strain on the institution has changed when you would when you would talk about the three top constitutional officers resigning? It's an it's an incredible strain, right? I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road. And I think it's a really hard situation. I don't know what the right answer is in this situation. I know that the way it with the exception of the attorney general, I think the way that these individuals have handled the allegations also speaks to very poor judgment. Mm. And I I just I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is here. It seems like a really bad thing for Virginia to have a governor that it never thought about being in the line of succession. Mm, yeah, exactly. It also seems like a really bad thing to be led by folks who have these serious problems and not only serious problems, but an inability to take full responsibility for those problems. I think Governor Northam's behavior was bizarre. I think his statements about being a doctor and how he can help with healing are strange and ill-advised. So it's it's very tough. It is very, very tough. And I I almost wish that there was some kind of mechanism where at some point a special election is triggered instead mm. of having, you know, instead of proceeding down the line of succession this early in a term under these circumstances. Man, that would be so hard on the state as well, though. Another a special election would, it be, would be incredibly That's right. difficult. 
I don't think Ralph Northam's going to resign anyway, to be honest. It seems to be that at this point, because of the intensity and, and increasing accusations against Lieutenant Governor, that the conversation has shifted there and he's going to write it out. I think that looks to be his strategy. And this is a, such a hard thing because you don't want to be deciding what's worse. And that's yeah. almost what this is boiling yep. down to. Yep. And everyone's what's worse answer is so necessarily laden with personal experiences and identity. It's just taking what could have been a learning moment and turning it into something else entirely and exposing so much ugliness in our political system and and in when you start thinking about how people rise to the top of their parties and how people get to elected office and you know that we're just scratching the surface here mm-hmm. which is why people push back so strongly against there being consequences because this this shows you like once you start probing there's a lot of ugliness in where we are as as a country right now i don't know what to do about it i i honestly find this mystifying yeah all right we're gonna move on and compliment the other side beth who would you like to compliment well in keeping with our interest in congress doing what congress exists to do i would like to compliment representative mark Takano, who's a democrat from california he chairs the house veterans affairs committee and there has been reporting for some time about a $10 billion contract that the VA entered in to implement a new electronic health record system because three members of Mar-a-Lago were deeply involved in the discussions about this particular contract. And Takano initially passed on investigating this contract. He said something like he didn't want to beat a dead horse and he just wanted to move on from it. But since then, ProPublica has published some evidence of self-dealing by one of the Mar-a-Lago members. He apparently tried to use the VA to help with a foundation that his son runs. And there have been additional documents produced about communications among these members of Mar-a-Lago. And there is enough here to make one wonder if this $10 billion contract was entered into appropriately by the VA. And so he is taking it on. And he has requested additional documents and has decided that reviewing this is worth his committee's time. And I think this is exactly the kind of thing that Congress is there to do. And I'm happy that he's doing it. I wanted to compliment Representative Walter Jones, who recently passed away at 76. He was first elected as a Democrat and then switched parties to Republican. He was first elected in the 90s. He coined the term freedom fries. That's one of his claim to fame. But the really touching story I read about him is that he was particularly famous for changing his mind about the Iraq war. He was quoted as saying, I did not do what I should have done to read and find out whether Bush was telling us the truth about Saddam being responsible for 9-11 and having weapons of mass destruction because I did not do my job then. I helped kill 4,000 Americans and I will go to my grave regretting that. He attended a funeral of a Marine in 2003 and after that began writing letters to the family of dead service members, which he described as an act of penance. He said, I want them to know that my heart aches as their heart aches. He eventually wrote over 11,000 letters. He had a special section of his office as a memorial to anyone who left Camp Lejeune, which I believe was in his district, and was killed. 
and he tried to get Congress to debate a new war authorization since they've been under the same one since the September 11th attacks. I just I think it's so rare to hear someone describe their acts as a congressman without an ounce of defensiveness, especially about such a serious subject as the loss of American life. And I think that the way he spoke about that and then to write out, it's very touching. And I hope he, before he passed away, felt like he exercised some of that penance. Next up, we are going to talk about the many, many people running for president in the Democratic Party, and particularly the women running, and how women in governance and on the campaign trail are covered. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. 
You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Most of you know by now, every Democratic woman in the United States Senate is running for the Democratic nomination for president. It's not technically true, but it feels true. Feels true in a way. So this weekend, Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, and Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, made their announcements official. What really interested us as far as how the female candidates are being covered was Senator Klobuchar. Her announcement was a little bit derailed by reporting that she has abused staff members, that there was screaming, yelling, that she's basically terrible to work for. And whether or not this reporting was a result of sexism and coverage, that women are being accused of tough bosses when men aren't, or whether there's some validity to these reports. Well, starting there, I am devastated by this reporting. I knew you were going to be sad. I think Senator Klobuchar is so constructive in the legislature. I think she is reasonable. I think she focuses on the right things. I think she communicates clearly. I think her demeanor is exceptionally helpful in the televised committee meetings that I've watched. So I was really waiting and excited for her announcement. And I think all of those things can be true and it can still be extremely problematic Mm-hmm. that staff turnover for her has been high, that she is thought to be demeaning, that people feel a sense of fear around her. And this is just a passion issue for me. Other than my passion for improving our political dialogue, my secondary passion issue is improving workplace cultures. It's where I've spent the bulk of my energy for the past several years. And I just think the way that we treat each other in the workplace is political, that it matters a lot. And so for me, this was just really surprising and upsetting news. And I know that it shouldn't be surprising. Apparently, this is not shocking to her colleagues in Congress, Also, certainly not limited to her. On Twitter, I have seen lots of people who've worked in Congress talking about, listen, notoriously, Klobuchar is difficult. Susan Collins apparently is difficult. Barbara Mikulski was famously difficult with staff. And I've also seen a lot of journalists showing, you know, with links to articles over a period of years, that the exact same kind of reporting has been done about lots and lots of men in Congress. And so while I do think that we naturally react more negatively to women who are difficult bosses, I also think that there are some things that are just objectively not okay. Mm -hmm. And much of what I've read in this reporting for me falls into the objectively not okay bucket. Yeah, I totally agree. So I worked in Congress. I worked for Senator Bob Menendez, a sort of notoriously tough guy. He's a Jersey politician, right? Jersey is a tough political scene. Never was I treated this way by my bosses, by him. He was always incredibly respectful of us. Now, I'm not saying I can speak for every person's experience who's ever worked for him, 
But my personal experience, and I never heard reporting about anything anywhere approaching someone throwing binders and hitting staff or staff showing up to other people and saying, oh, I'm supposed to tell you the reason she's late is I'm bad at my job. I mean, this stuff is just beyond the pale. Also worth noting that Hillary Clinton, a recipient of a massive amount of sexist reporting, was an amazing boss. And you really never heard these reports around her either. People were fiercely loyal to her. She was a really good boss. She was respectful of people. I never saw her lash out. I was in a room, you know, with her and a couple other people. She was always respectful of people and professional there. So, I mean, I I don't, I personally, this does not look like sexist reporting to me or gender stereotypes. In particular, because for me, one of the biggest issues with 2016 and 2007 on the reporting, particularly about Hillary Clinton, is that it was being done predominantly by men. And that's not to say that there are no roles for male journalists in politics, obviously, and that there are no ways in which female journalists can perpetuate gender stereotypes. That is obviously a thing that can happen. However, you know, a a big issue was you had Matt Lauer up there doing the debate and you had Mark Halperin up there doing the analysis and these guys who like clearly had hangups. Okay, but the reporting on Klobuchar has been done all by women. The BuzzFeed report and the Huffington Post article were all reported by women. So uh, to me, I think that this it is harmful in a way to default to the this is sexist coverage. And I think that's something we have to really think about as we're covering all these female candidates, because if every time they're criticized, and I don't think this has happened, but if every time they're criticized, it becomes, well, this is sexist coverage, then the claim that it's sexist coverage is going to lose its teeth. So, I, you know, I think everybody should be really thoughtful when they think about not, you know, whether or not there is sexism at play in every single instance, which I absolutely think there there can be. But I mean, I, and it's not like there's going to be a hardcore answer. It's not a math equation. Oh, if this and this and this happens, if it's a male reporter and they use the word likable, that equals sexism. So, I mean, it's difficult. But I think with regards to particularly the Amy Klobuchar thing and, and full disclosure, a lot of this is my experience as a staffer and being defensive of these people and the way they're treated. This does not seem like sexist coverage to me. I want to say one more thing about this because it's so important to me. If you are out there perpetuating the idea that tough bosses are necessary in hardworking environments, Mm -hmm. please stop. Please Mm -hmm. don't do that. Because I have observed many, many working relationships in my career and been part of many working relationships in my career. The vast majority of my bosses have been fine. Not Mm -hmm. great. Not bad just fine. A handful have been great. Those people are still very important to me today. A handful have been truly terrible. And they have been truly terrible in their minds in service of hard work and excellence. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, a terrible boss has never gotten the best out of his or her people. Yep. You can be tough, hardworking, I mean, Hillary Clinton is a great example of that. This Mm -hmm. is not a person who shirked in her professionalism or her knowledge of things, however you feel about her. She's an incredibly driven, hardworking person. If you want the best out of your people, though, you treat them like colleagues with different skill sets, not subordinates. Yep. And if you are 
finding the pressure of the United States Senate so intense that you are raging as soon as you get out of a meeting or throwing something or asking people to pick up the clothes that you dropped in your floor, I don't think the Oval Office is the next right stop for you. And it pains me to say that because of how much I respect Amy Klobuchar and what she does as a senator. But I think this is really important and character revealing in ways that are You know, I I grew up with a pastor who often quoted, I can't remember who, about how character is who you are in the dark. Yeah. And I think character is who you are to people who report to you. I think character is who you are in the writer or the, you know, the, the body person memo, whatever. Like, these are not small things, in my opinion. And I think it does a disservice to women everywhere to talk about them as though this is just sexist coverage. And I think it does a disservice to the entire conversation about power dynamics, which is everything we're dealing with in society right now. Yep. Everything comes down to power dynamics. If you think this is a small thing, I just respectfully disagree with you and ask you to reconsider that. Well, and here's the other thing that really bothers me. Okay, first of all, I found her response, oh, I'm a tough boss, felt really flat. First of all, the people reporting this are people who are massively invested in politics, who understand, like, I don't, I didn't know anybody who worked at the Hill who didn't get, like, this is a tough, stressful, low-paying job. Nobody came in and was, like, expecting to be babied. So the idea that, like, oh, well, they just didn't understand the demands of the job. That's not fair. And the idea that, yeah, you're, oh, well, this is just about being a tough boss. No, no, it's not. That's not, that's not fair. That's throwing the the staff members who had legitimate concerns and who took a great risk in a political environment and in the democratic universe of staffers and people for which you can work in, which is not big to come out and say, this was so problematic that we felt like we have to say something because it is reflective of her character. And it is something you should consider when you're thinking about whether someone will be a a good president. Now, saying all that, let me say this. Mikulski, also famously hard, difficult, tough. I think that there is a conversation to be had that there is a factor of misogyny that comes into play for why women in positions of power act like that like oh for sure you know what i mean like i think they get tough and pissed off and (laughs) arguably a little mean because they're encountering one roadblock one sexist bullshit moment after the other and i can understand why they're mad and frustrated but i saw this in other politicians other either of different races or of different socioeconomic backgrounds or whatever you you can see this bubble up But it doesn't have to be the way you react to that environment. I can understand it. I can empathize. But I think there are other ways to react to being treated unfairly as you rise up the ranks of power in politics. Like I said, Hillary Clinton is a good example. Barack Obama is a good example. I think that, you know, if anybody had a a justification for raging against the machine and being treated unfairly, surely he did. And one of my favorite things I've ever read about him was... Alyssa Mastromonaco, one of his staffers, wrote a, a memoir, and she said he believed we were adults and capable of learning our own lessons. So there wasn't shaming. There wasn't angry outburst. And I so 
respect that because that is hard. That is, I'm not going to lie and say that isn't hard. You know, I had an amazing boss when I worked at the Senate who is still a dear close friend of mine. And we still had sort of clashes occasionally about what my role was and what's expected of staffers, but he handled it differently, you know, and I felt comfortable saying, I don't like how you handled that. That hurt my feelings. And so I just, I'm just so put off by the whole story. I don't think she's responding appropriately. The other way that I think misogyny plays a role here, at least in my experience, the women who treat people badly were treated badly. Mm-hmm. And they were treated badly by men who often were held up and celebrated as leaders. Yep. Yep. And so, of course, there are reasons that people behave the way they behave. To me, we are also in a moment as a country. Look, we like we have there are lots of wonderful things about living in this time. We get Netflix and indoor plumbing (laughs) and, you know, all kinds of fantastic Amazon Prime. Like there are wonderful things about living in this moment in history. But we also are in a moment that requires a whole lot of cleanup for past transgressions, for the way we've treated other human beings, for the way we've treated the planet. We are in a generation that is charged with a whole lot of cleanup. And if we don't practice within the the tiny units in which we operate, where we're day after day, hour after hour interacting with people, if we don't practice in those tiny spheres, treating people with generosity and graciousness, we are not going to be able to do it on a global scale. We're not. It has to be sourced from those private interactions. If we do nothing else with this podcast, I want Dylan and Elise who work with us to feel appreciated and respected every day. And if we were doing, if we were like moving mountains with the podcast and the book and the two of them didn't feel that way, then to me, we need to hang it up because you have to start in your tiny spheres. Now, this is not to say that I want to throw Amy Klobuchar away as a human being. I don't. I do think this is a really important aspect of this story. And I would love to see her come out. This is kind of what our friend, our new friend, Dr. Camp was saying about Ralph Northam. I would love to see her come out and acknowledge that maybe she wasn't aware of how significant this problem was, and she's going to hire someone to help her work on it. I think the other important aspect of this moment in time, and exactly what you're saying, is we we make everything about the individual. And the individual's either trash or garbage. The individual's either contributing by being president or all is lost. And that's not true. She could contribute dramatically to the cleanup of our culture and to this situation um, by taking this, taking your, like you said, either hiring an export or honestly, if she, if this derails her campaign, Amy Klobuchar, rest easily that you made a contribution to humanity. Is it on the level you could have as president? Perhaps not. But it's important for us to all, if, if the only thing you do is for everybody to realize the way I treat my staff is massively important and I need to really assess that, that's a contribution, an important one. Arguably one of the most important ones anyone can make, I think. The best part about right now with regards to how we are all assessing female candidates and how the press is covering female candidates is that there are so many. So we don't have to justify if the politics of a female president is massively important to you, as it is to me. We don't have to justify bad behavior because we have lots of other choices. And we can look honestly at coverage and see, wait, what's bubbling up because it's a 
problem with gender and because it's a problem with this candidate. And look, it's not bubbling up for some of the other candidates. It's not we're not hearing, oh, they're a tough boss about Kristen Gillibrand or Kamala Harris. And so we need to think about that, too. I mean, that's the best part about this is we can look across the board and say, wait, what's an issue? What's uh, what are we seeing as systematic of the way all of them are covered as opposed to the way in which this particular candidate is covered? I agree with you. You know, we're seeing in the presidential Democratic primary what I think is important in the private sector also, and that is just strength in numbers. The the main way to kind of untangle our own notions of gender bias and our observations of the way gender bias works itself out on different situations, I think, is to have lots of different women involved. Because if you look at the spectrum of Democratic candidates right now, I don't think any of the male candidates are anywhere near as exciting as the female candidates. And surely we can all find one of these women, not that we are necessarily going to vote for them, but surely we can all find at least one of these women that we can say, I like her or Mm -hmm. I see a little bit of myself in her or I see leadership qualities in her that I would be comfortable voting for. It's nice to get away from just all of our Hillary baggage, which was a lot driven by gender and a lot just driven by historical baggage and other things. But, you know, it, it seems like we have a new opportunity to have a very different conversation because so many women have jumped in. And I'm I'm grateful to all of them for that. And if you can't find yourself liking anything about any of them, perhaps there is some sexism at play and you need to examine that. Just saying. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I I think anytime you have this big a pool, there should be someone for you. Mm -hmm. What I wonder, Sarah, asking you as as the Democrat in this conversation, is there any space left in the field? Like if you're Joe Biden or Beto O'Rourke sitting on the sidelines right now, I'm struggling with sort of what's the what's the lane you're trying to run in? given that so many women have come out so early. I think at this point, if you're Beto or you're Biden, you have people telling you this is all great and they're great, but you're the only one that can win. The The last argument remaining to me is not because I don't believe any of these female candidates can win. I believe they can, including Senator Brooker. The last remaining road I think they're going to take is, but I'm the only one that can win. Yeah. And I've read reporting that there are folks just waiting for someone to have a massive screw up. That sends them out of the race and makes more room in the field. I don't think that we cure kind of gender bias in politics by having this field full of women, just like it's obvious that we have work to do around all kinds of issues. You know, one of the big kind of social media controversies over the weekend was and then this is just going to be part of the campaign, unfortunately, Elizabeth Warren's discussion of her heritage. God, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Not one single more minute do I want to talk about this. I totally agree. And I especially hate for Native Americans to have to suffer through the ugliness around this. It's awful. There will be racial issues in this campaign. There are going to be so many things. And I just kind of sit back and think, well, I, I just need to feel a sense of gratitude for people running, even people that I just disagree with entirely. I need to feel a sense of gratitude for people who are willing to put themselves through this. So that we can have these conversations as a country. Yeah, I don't think that the presence of all these women in the field is going to 
automatically fix things, but I do think it's going to help clarify things. And that's the most we can hope for right now. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Next up, we're going to talk about what's on our mind outside politics. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? My husband really wants me to watch Black Mirror. <laughs> and you did one episode and you were traumatized because you texted me. I'm out. 
one episode. <laughs> this is very far outside of my normal viewing habits. As longtime listeners know, I like my television to be pretty bubblegum-esque. Because by the point in the day that I'm turning the TV on, I've had enough of life. Also, I've realized I'm just a very sensitive person, and I would like to stay that way, as the the great Jewel said once. And I don't want to get emotionally invested in a television show. I'm emotionally invested. Like, I'm emotionally empty by the end of the day. I have exercised it all out in the world, and I just don't want it on my TV. So Chad says to me, well, let's watch one of the less intense Black Mirrors. Was this before or after you took my recommendation to start watching Russian Doll? After. It was such a tough weekend for me, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) So he says, let's watch one of the less intense Black Mirrors so you can just see how smart and well done it is. And Chad is a tough customer. And for him to tell me that something is really so special that I need to watch it, even though he knows I probably won't like it. You know, I, I, I love him. I said, sure. So we watched the San Junipero Black Mirror. If you are a fan of the show, you will know immediately what I'm talking about. And look, it is brilliant. It is thought-provoking. It is mind-bending. It brings up really important questions about just what it means to be human and about life and death. And I don't want to watch that at night. I just <laughs> We watched it and I was like, Chad, I need a palate cleanser. Please turn on like a modern family. I just cannot. So I'm a hard pass on Black Mirror as well. My husband is obsessed with it. He always tries to get me to watch it. Once I realized that they featured the robot dogs as taking over the world and then it came out that they were actually real life robot dogs, which I'm terrified of. Do not Google robot dog. It will freak you out. That I was like, no, I don't need, look, I have enough play in my head. My particular problem with Black Mirror, like, I like hard questions. I like TV shows that are dark and ask deep things. Hell, I watch Game of Thrones, although it's just a soap opera. But anyway, my thing with Black Mirror is, like, I have enough mind-spinning threads about the scary future of technology and how it's going to affect the human race. I, I don't need Black Mirror to expand on that and add visuals. I'm good. I'm good. I got it. I'm on board, Black Mirror. You don't need to convince me. We laughed until we cried because Chad turned on the trailer for it and it's going along. And I said, Chad, you know, I don't like to be scared. And he was like, it's not scary. And like the frame before he said that had a quote from a critic saying something like this show is going to cause you to think, why am I not more afraid? <laughs> like, it literally says that on the television. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. And I did text you about Russian Doll because so Sarah's been raving about Russian Doll and I watched two episodes. And Sarah and the and rest said, of the Internet. Please let me know if this is going to become less stressful at some point. Every time she's back in that bathroom, I'm like. <gasps> and I was like, well, she gets a companion. Does that help? And you're like, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't help. It's so good, though. You got to watch. It. OK. Well, I'm thinking about something very different. I'm thinking about my mother son book club. I posted about it on Instagram and I got lots of questions. And so I thought I would share a little bit about the Mother-Son Book Club on the podcast. My eldest son is nine. We have a really good peer group where many of his peers and the mothers of the peers and I are very close friends. And so we started a Mother-Son Book Club, I believe, two years ago. And we meet about every other month, maybe every three months, and we read the book together, and then we have a little book club discussion. Sometimes we do a craft. We have dinner, and the kids get to play. It's been so much fun. I highly recommend it. There are uh, 
five or six mother-son pairs in the in the group. We really revolutionized it this year. I'm making all my book clubs do this. We picked the books for the year and then scheduled them because that's always the most annoying part of every meeting is like, what book do we want to read? Blah, blah, blah. Shout out to our listener, Beth, who is a elementary school, I think elementary and middle school librarian who we presented with at the English Teachers Conference in Texas. She's amazing. And so I was like, books. And she sent me like 15. They're all amazing. I can't wait to read them. We read Wizard of Oz first this year because we want to do a classic. Spoiler alert, that book is weird and nothing like the movie. Then we are reading a couple other books that have to deal with like social media. So we're getting to some more mature subject matters, hoping to open up dialogue with our boys about some difficult subjects. But they're really, they're all in. They love to talk about it, what they liked about the book, what they didn't. And I just highly recommend it. It's really, really, really fun way to interact with your kids. You inspired me to start a family book club as well. And so my friend Cindy from church and I got together and then Cindy's friend Ashley and her two daughters hopped in. So we have six kids. We're doing it every other month. It's all girls right now, but we're totally open to it being you know, boys too and dads, whatever. So family book club it is. And we do a book and we have a snack and a craft and a service project every time we get together. So for example, this most recent meeting, we packed bags with water bottles and granola bars and shower toiletries to give to a ministry at our church that invites homeless folks into the church to use our shower facilities. And the girls seem to really understand that. They pack everything up and then they actually take it and deliver it to the church. So it's community service that they can really get their minds around, which I absolutely love. And we've kept it very easy. We do choose the book for the next time each month. This time, we let everybody choose their own book. So when we get together next, they'll all share about different books. And we think that'll be fun, too. My favorite part, though, is that Cindy always asks them to rate the books. And it's always like it was horrific or the best thing ever. There is not a lot of in between on the rating scale. Love it. Before we close out today's episode, we wanted to let you hear directly from our wonderful listener, Kelly, about her dream for getting our book into the hands of every member of Congress. I am here with the delightful Kelly Stolz, who is superstar member of our launch team. And Kelly is the coordinator and mastermind of the If You Give a Rep, a book initiative. Kelly, thank you so much for everything and for spending a few minutes on the phone with me. Oh, thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And our launch team, you guys, has been amazing this week. We are so grateful for all of you. So Kelly, tell me what motivated you to start this fabulous initiative of trying to get this book to every member of Congress. Well, I was reading chapter six of the book in which you talk about the importance of transformative conversation. I'll read the passage that really sparked the idea for me. You're discussing Erica Commissar's research. We can't get to the substance of Commissar's research without first recognizing our stakes and our personal choices and how those stakes color our perspective. That's the beauty of curiosity. And trying to understand another person's perspective, it often gives us the space to understand our own more deeply as well. We also can have productive dialogue with others without being curious about what stakes color the other person's perspective. Our stakes aren't ideological, coherent, or rational, and that's okay. The same holds true for other people. 
You don't need to discount a person's position because of what is influencing it. You just need to acknowledge what's influencing it. And it occurred to me as I read those words that so often the prison through which we evaluate candidates, be it for legislative or executive office, is solely one of policy position. And so we are very earnest about holding our preferred candidates accountable for specific positions of policy. Really, we should be equally serious holding them accountable to a process of deliberation. Thoughtfully consider all angles and issues, have real, honest, often difficult conversations about the ins and outs, and really solidify why they believe what they believe. I and, love that. And so it occurred to me, if every member of Congress read this book, I envisioned them gathering in the hallways and the cloakrooms, sharing favorite passages with one another. I think about the way that the words that you and, and Sarah have written so beautifully will inspire them to craft thoughtful policy. And so I went to the, the Facebook groups that we use for the launch team and put out the idea. And as always, it's a place where your ideas are affirmed and celebrated. And you gave me the thumbs up. And so it was full steam ahead. I love that idea of holding our legislators to a process standard, not just a policy standard. I think that in and of itself would change America. So tell me how it's going and what you really want our listeners who are not on the launch team to think about in terms of this initiative. It's an opportunity to have a real impact on a member of Congress. Now, I have an opportunity to purchase a book, to write a letter, and explain why you as a voter, having read this book, having listened to this podcast, let their representatives know that they will be holding them accountable for a process-oriented way of viewing policy. And they will expect them not only to articulate the position, but to be able to, to discuss their process of arriving at that. So I know you're going to have links to the sign sheets in the show notes. And so I just encourage listeners to go to the show notes, click on the sign sheet, pick out a member of Congress. It is possible to make a personal visit that has a great impact, but however you can use this book into their hands, that is the goal. Yes. So as she said, we will have the links in the show notes. And you have an email address set up too, right? If people have questions. Yes, and that email address is books for the number four reps at gmail.com. Books for reps at gmail.com. And we also have put in our newsletter once Kelly's amazing vision of this laid out in words. And we will do that again this week so that everyone can see it and really kind of home in on this. And Kelly, I cannot thank you enough for this vision, which is beautiful, and for all of your support. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing the gift of nuance with all of us. It's a much-needed bomb. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ear tomorrow over on the Nuance Life, and until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.